I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 127 to begin with. And the title of this message is, It's Time to Build. It's Time to Build. Now, I know that, you know, the message, something like that, you, you look around you and say, I'm not really sure it's time to build, Pastor. I'm not talking about a physical meeting or a physical building, but I'm talking about the body of Christ talking about this local group right here. I, I, uh, I believe that we are, we are obviously part of a body worldwide. There are many churches in this city of which we are a part because they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They serve the Lord. They preach the gospel. But today I'm concerned about this church as we move forward in a new year. I believe that what God has for us today and I believe that what we need to understand is that God wants us not only as individuals to have lives that are constantly and consistently being built for his kingdom but also to have a body of believers that is growing that is being built listen to what the Bible says starting at verse 1 and that's the only verse I want to read in this particular passage of scripture It says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Notice that. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Now I want you to keep this in mind as well. And that is that this psalm was a psalm of Solomon. Solomon wrote this particular psalm and in fact Solomon was the one who would build the temple of the Lord. He is the one who would build the house of the Lord. Remember David wanted to build the temple. He wanted to build a place where people could come and worship, where where the sacrifices would be carried out on a daily basis. There would be one central place in Jerusalem, a central building, where people would come and God told David, no, you're not going to be able to build the temple. But interestingly enough, even though it was Solomon who would build the temple, Solomon said this, unless the Lord builds it, those who put up a building... Labor in vain. Think about that for a second. You're putting up a building. You're working to put up this building. But unless the Lord is involved in the process, unless he is present there to do something in the hearts and the lives of the worshipers, of the people who come, and he is there to make them understand that he's got to be there and he's got to be part of it, you can put together all the programs, you can put together all the fun things and all the great ideas, but unless the Lord is present, in this place brothers and sisters we labor in vain we've got to come to the place where we recognize and understand that unless we have the spirit of God in our meetings our services are in vain that unless we experience the power and the presence of the Lord you say well who's it depend on certainly that depends on the pastor well to a point it does you're absolutely right it depends on me a little bit But i got to tell you, it depends on you also. 
that when we come into this place, we don't come in with this sort of a haphazard attitude that just says, well, you know, here we are. It's another Sunday. It's what I do. I just go to church. And that's what it's all about. No, it's not what it's all about. This building, this place that we possess as a congregation, that we own as a congregation, brothers and sisters, must still always be built by the power and the presence of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Jesus said these words, and I'm going, why don't we turn over there? Matthew chapter 16. Go over to Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to see the words of Jesus as he speaks to his disciples, as he speaks to Peter especially. But his disciples were present for this, and the Bible says this in verse 18. Uh, let's back up and read verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. That is, in verse 16, Peter confessed, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then he says this, And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build, notice that, I will build my church. I'm going to build it. Now, oftentimes we think about building and this, this phrase, I will build my church, and immediately we think of a structure, a building that sits on a piece of property. That's not at all what Jesus was talking about. In our day and age of, you know, you, you go to a small church, you have a building such as this. You go to a large church and you might find different amenities and different things that have been attached to it. And, and we put, you know, a certain amount of thought into it. When we moved into this building uh, in 2005, there was, there was no carpet all throughout the place. The pews were a different color and did not have padding on the back. We put some thought into what it was that we might do. There was just a red carpet runner down the center. We said, let's carpet throughout. Let's put some padding, further padding on the pews. The pews were reupholstered. We put some thought into this building. But in the end, it's not about that. When Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, he said, I'm not going to reupholster the pews, and I'm not going to put some great things, new amenities in the building. You know, let's, let's try to put a screen so everybody knows the words to the song, and let's try to get a new sound system so everybody can hear the pastor shout. Sorry, you can all hear that. I know just fine. Well, let's try to do all of those things. Jesus was not talking about all of these externals. He was talking about hearts and lives of men and women that have been broken down by sin. They have been torn apart and they are in pieces. And he says, I will build my church. It all starts, brothers and sisters, with the people who come into this building that they might worship the Lord. And if they don't know Christ, that they might find the Lord so that their individual lives will be built up for the kingdom. I look around us here on a Sunday morning and I realize that there are those who are ill today. There are those who are out. They haven't been feeling well. But then I also look around and I realize there are those who are feeling just fine and have decided not to show up for one reason or another today. 
And I wonder how serious we really are sometimes about the building that God has called us to be a part of, to help to build. You say, we, ha- we get to help? Yes, absolutely. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But Jesus said, I will build my church. But you know what, brothers and sisters? It's the same as it's always been. He calls us. He cries out to us to come and to be a part of it, to come and to be part of the local body. But unless we answer the call, we can sit right at home and just feel like everything's just fine. God understands that I'm a little weary today. I'm a little tired. I don't need to be in church. God has called us to do a little bit better in 2011. I believe that the Lord is calling us to a little bit higher place than what we lived at in 2010. And you know what? You, Some of you might be saying, well, I'm just waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why wait? Why not pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Why not call upon God and say, God, you've got to do something in my heart and in my life. You've got to change the situation. You've got to come and you've got to visit this local body. Brothers and sisters, we live in a big city I almost said why are we so few but you know what I want to preach I I don't want to preach to those who aren't here today and God help me not to do that I want to preach to those who are here you're here but you know what God we're in a big city brothers and sisters and what God is calling us to do is to reach out to those that are a part of our lives on a daily basis and let them know how much God really loves them how much Jesus did for them on the cross and what it is that he can do to change their lives and how he can minister eternal life to them if they will receive it by faith. Jesus said I will build my church But don't we have a hand in this? Oh, we absolutely do. We absolutely do. In fact, you look into the book of Acts, and we're not going to turn over there, but you look into the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on on that newborn church, that, that small group of believers. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on that small group of believers, that small group of believers under the power of the Spirit and with the help of the Lord went out and absolutely revolutionized their world and their culture. A lot of times we spend a great deal of time worrying about whether or not we have our cultural you know, uh, things tagging along behind us. Can I just tell you today that God, yes, God loves your culture wherever you might have come from, but God has a new culture for you. It is the culture of the kingdom of heaven. It is a new citizenship that you and I now have because of what he has done in our lives. And in this culture of the kingdom of God, he has called us to bring the light of the world to those who are in darkness. The culture of the kingdom is to reach out to a lost and a hurting world. And I believe that as he said he's going to build his church, he now then commissioned his disciples just shortly before he ascended into heaven. And he told them, he said, I want you to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. He says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you are going to be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you. You are the ones who are going to go out there and do the work. You uh, you are going to be my agent of building the kingdom of God. Listen, I'm not looking to build a kingdom for me as the pastor. I'm not looking to build a kingdom or a name for you and individuals who are involved in various types of ministries in this church. What we are looking to do is to build the kingdom of, of God in this city. 
God has called us to greater things. But what do we do when we're met with opposition? I would say that in 2010, it was a year of opposition. It seemed as though, you know, with the economy failing, and it's still, it's still reeling, it's still, there's still problems everywhere. There are all kinds of things that are going on. And everybody was looking to politicians to fix it. Nobody's fixed anything yet. And I'm not really sure that they can. I, I don't really know. I, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not a financial numbers kind of guy. But I got to tell you, it, it takes a while for a country to pull out of something like this. But, you know, in the end, when it all comes down to it, brothers and sisters, we look at that and we say, you know, this past year it's been really rough. I've had hopes and dreams and wishes and all kinds of things and saw absolutely nothing happen. In fact, saw the opposite take place. And a lot of times we look back on that and we say, well, good riddance, want, you know, 2010. Let 2011 be better. But, you know, as a believer, we approach one year and another the same way the world does with the sense of hope, like somehow I hope it's going to happen. But you know what? The Bible lets us know that we don't have to have this kind of a fatalistic hope. But we can trust and we can believe in a God who is greater than the economy. In a God who is bigger than all of the problems that we're faced with in this nation of ours. That God is bigger than all of the things that you have had to battle in your life over this past year. God is bigger than all of those things. And it's time that we begin to believe that God can and will show up in our situation. You know, I, I realize I realize that as we go get into this year a little further in, you know, all the resolutions will will go away. And I'm not even going to begin to ask how many of you made resolutions. I just this year I just resolved not to resolve anything <laughs> because I know myself too well. But you know, you might make a goal. You might have a goal, a resolution that you want to, but you know, well, you get into February and all of a sudden you realize you haven't done anything you said you were going to do January 1st. You see, you're trusting in yourself as opposed to trusting in the Lord. And you know what? God wants us to recognize and understand he's part of the building process of our lives. He is part of that, but now he's called us to something greater than what it is that you and I have struggled with over the past year. He has called us to victory. He's called us to an overcoming faith. He has called us to build upon that sure foundation that he has given us in his word and desires for each and every one of us to live above the world rather than below the world like you to turn with me over to the book of Ezra. Turn over to the book of Ezra, and then we're going to go over to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Ezra deals with the return of the exiles out of Babylonian captivity, at least one, one group or a few groups of people that came back. But really the main topic of this entire book is the idea or the, the rebuilding of the temple. Whereas Nehemiah is going to deal with the rebuilding of the walls. In fact, these two books that we have divided up into two books were really in the old uh, Hebrew Bible were one book. 
Ezra, Nehemiah. It's just really one book. But for us, it is two books. Ezra deals with the rebuilding of the temple. But in both places, and interestingly, both are in chapter 4, chapter 4 of the book of Ezra, and then chapter 4 of the book of Nehemiah. We're going to read just a little bit out of there. We've got to recognize something as well, that when we are trying to rebuild or we're trying to build with the help of the Lord, there is going to be opposition. We have to arm ourselves with the fact that the enemy does not like you making any kind of spiritual advances. And he will use whatever kind of, of distraction, whatever kind of thing to get in the way and to hinder you from progressing and moving forward with what God wants you to do. In fact, the enemy will use individuals to get discouraged and you get down and you get depressed and, and all of that. And all of a sudden, your one lone little trial will compile with somebody else's lone little trial that they're going through. And all of a sudden, in the body, what we have is we have weak links. Remember the, the, the show a few years ago, the game show, The Weakest Link? Actually, the star of the show was no, no one contestant. It was the one British lady who would stand up and right at the point where somebody had failed, I don't even remember the premise of the show, but they would fail and she would just very sternly look at them and say, you are the weakest link and dismiss them. And that was probably, that was literally the, the silliest thing or the funniest thing about the show. But you know what, brothers and sisters, in the body of Christ, we can become weak links. As it were, in fact, in the book of Amos, the book of Amos in chapter, I believe it's chapter 8, I don't remember exactly where it is, but the Bible says this, and the prophet Amos is prophesying to the people and says, you know what, you're going to be led away into exile through the breaks in your wall." In other words, you know what he was saying to them? He was saying those things that were meant to protect you, those things that were meant to be your stability, you have allowed it to weaken. You've allowed it to go away to the point where now you're going to walk out into captivity right through the thing that should have protected you. And many of us, we have allowed prayer, we have allowed the Word of God to just kind of meld away and melt away in our lives to the point where no longer is it a, a protection from the enemy and what the enemy is trying to do. Brothers and sisters, we have got to shore up the wall. We have got to shore up that protection within our lives, getting the word of God and getting prayer back into our lives so that when the enemy comes along, and he will come along, and he will try to discourage you and bring you down just the way that he did in Ezra's time and Nehemiah's time. Let's read this, starting at verse 1 of chapter 4 in the book of Ezra. The Bible says this, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. That was actually not true. They just incorporated the worship of Jehovah along with their other idols. You know, there are people in the world like that today. They believe in Jesus. You ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior? Oh, Absolutely. But I believe in worshiping the sun. I believe in worshiping, you know, all kinds of things, animals and all kinds of things. They don't believe in Jesus. 
These, these individuals that were encountered at, with Zerubbabel and Ezra were not individuals that should be a part or should have been a part of this building, but they were offering to help. And they said, we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezerhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Notice verse 3, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them, notice this, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Think about this for a minute. They're there rebuilding the temple. The temple for them was the center. It was the place. It was their heart where they would go and they would worship the Lord. For them to get the temple built and, and set up in that moment was absolutely essential. But the enemy does his best to come in and bring discouragement, just like he did with them. Listen, the enemy does his best in your life to bring discouragement and cause it to set in to the point where you say, you know what, I can't go any further in God. Certainly this is it. And all of a sudden we become so discouraged and downhearted and depressed about it that we think that we can't make an advance in the Lord. I need you to see this and to understand this because in the end the temple was rebuilt. Now i got to come back to Ezra in a moment, but just turn over to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, and then we're going to get back over into the book of Ezra in just a minute because there is something so wonderful and so powerful in this. The Bible says this, starting at chapter 4 and verse 1 of the book of Nehemiah. Just one book over. The Bible says, now there is some opposition. Remember, Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The walls had been torn down. They had been left in rubble. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah came back from, from his service as uh, the cupbearer to the king in, in Persia. And he made it back, but verse four, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are these, those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? This guy is mocking them. They're there working to rebuild the walls, that place of protection, to keep people like this out. Remember, the, these armies, they had basically, during the whole time the people were in Babylon, they had run roughshod through the whole country. They had had just freedom to go wherever they were, and they were, in, they were essentially almost in charge. Until all of a sudden this group started coming back with a letter from the king saying it's going, it's going ahead. You can rebuild. But now they're getting upset. They're looking and they're saying they're making progress. And all of a sudden they're saying this, this can't happen. We can't let this happen. So they start to despise them and they start to make fun of them. They start to mock them. Brothers and sisters, the progress you make in your life in Christianity, it will be mocked by the world. 
The world hates Jesus. The world has never been in love with Jesus. They might say they believe in him, which is essentially to say, I believe he existed. And that's it. When somebody says, I believe in Jesus, it does not mean that they want him and love him and worship him as their savior. But now there's mocking that is going on. Listen to what it says. Verse 3 says, to buy the Ammonite who is at his side said what, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So not only he's mocking them saying, you guys can't even build your wall right. The little fox goes up on there. It's all just going to come tumbling down. It's all just going to fall right down. You really think you're doing anything? You know what, brothers and sisters, from time to time, the enemy comes along in our lives. We're doing our best to, to just go with God and go with the Lord and, and, and serve him and witness for him and pray. And all of a sudden, the enemy comes along and says, you know what? You've made such little progress. Really, do you think that you're going to do anything for God? Do you really think that your life is of any value to the kingdom? I mean, come on, think about it. You get the little weakest trial in your life and you're just, you know, you're on the floor in tears and you just can't handle it. And the enemy comes along and he tries to make you think that somehow what God is building in your life is less than his power. But I want you to know that if God is a part of it, that if God is working in your life and he is building in your life, you need to know that it is something of value and there is something of great power that is happening in your spirit and in your life. God is not going to let you be taken out of the game. So he begins to make fun and we begin to see that Nehemiah begins to react to it. And here's how he reacts. Verse 4. This is the first thing that we ought to do when the enemy comes along and we're trying to rebuild or we're trying to build up in, in the kingdom of God and build up in this local body of believers. Here is the first thing that we have to do. The Bible says this in verse 4, hear us, O God. He prayed. He didn't resort to anything else. He didn't say, well, let me go talk, you know. Let me go talk to my brother and my sister, my mother, my father. Let me go talk to somebody in the church. Let me go get counsel from the pastor. Let me go see what, you know, what I ought to do. You know what he did? He prayed. When the enemy came in with opposition to the rebuilding that God wanted to do in that city and in that place at that time, he called upon the name of the Lord when the enemy came in and tried to discourage and tried to mock and tried to bring people down. And you know what? A lot of times we look and we say, well, you know, I prayed, but nothing happened. Well, same thing happened here. Take a look. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 says this. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, well, they continued. I shouldn't say nothing happened. They continued to do the work. They just kept going. They kept doing in spite of what the enemy did. But you know what? The enemy didn't stop. Listen to what, what happened. It says that no gap was left in it, though up to, uh, up to that time I had not set the doors in the gate. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages. But they were scheming to harm me. 
Notice that. The Bible lets us know that the enemy goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, he prayed once, and a lot of times we leave it at that. Well, I prayed, and then I kept doing what God wanted me to do, but the enemy didn't back, back off. You think he's going to give up that easily? Do you think he's going to back off that easily? He doesn't back off that easily. He wants to take you out. The Bible says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's not about just somehow bringing a little bit of discouragement in your heart. Oh, no, no, no. He's about getting you to give up. He's about getting you to walk out those doors and say, I'm never going back to church again. He's about getting you to put your Bible away and say, I'm not reading that ever again. He wants you to absolutely give up, brothers and sisters. But you know what Nehemiah did? He just kept working, and he kept praying, and he kept working, and he kept praying. And then he made other adjustments in this passage. I don't have time to get into it and read it. But there are other things that Nehemiah did to fight the enemy. Brothers and sisters, we cannot back down when the enemy says, boo, we can't cower in a corner and say that somehow it's time to give up. It's not time to give up. It's time for us to look to heaven and say, God, pour out your spirit in this place. Lord, you come and you minister in this place you help me to overcome the struggles within my spirit and within my heart I want you to go back to the book of Ezra for a minute because I want you to see something that is so wonderful remember how we read the verse of scripture two verses of scripture Psalm 127 verse 1 unless the Lord builds the house the laborers labor in vain. And then Jesus said, I will build my church in the book of Matthew. Or the book of Ezra, all of a sudden letters start going back and forth. A bunch of letter writers. They pull out the typewriter. The enemies do. And they say, all right, fine. You guys are going to go ahead with the building, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to send a letter to the king of Persia, who's, you know, the guy's, he's like the top honcho. He still rules over the land. You know, Alexander the Great hadn't quite come around yet, so Persia was in power. And Persia was, they were, they had toppled Babylon. Babylon had toppled Jerusalem. And, and the, while the people of Israel, while the exiles were in Babylon, Persia comes in and just takes over, just wipes Babylon off the map and, and takes over. Now it's Persia that's in charge. And this King Cyrus had decreed, this King Cyrus of Persia had decreed, the people of Israel are allowed to go back and they are allowed to build their temple. And in fact, what I want the people of, of, uh, to do is I want them and people who, who know some of these exiles around, I want you to give them things as they leave, just similar to how it was in Egypt. The Egyptians, the Bible says, when they came out of Egypt, they gave them gold, silver. They just were like, here, get out of here. He said, I want you to give them stuff. Give them things that they need. Give them money. Give them clothes. Give them food. Give them all kinds of things for their trip and on their way back so that they can be sustained and they can live when they get back to this desolate city. And they do that. And now all of a sudden, the opposition comes and says, wait a minute, the temple's being rebuilt we can't allow this temple to be rebuilt because that's the center of their worship. That, that is their very heart. Everything revolves around the temple. They'll become strong. So let's write a letter to Cyrus. But by then, Cyrus was gone. All right, let's write a letter to King Darius. Darius had come on the scene. He was not, 
you know, he was, he was in Persia. He had never traveled there. He didn't know, you know, all of what had taken place, but he knew what Cyrus had decreed. So they get down, they type out a letter, send it to, to Darius, and you just tell him, look, these people are just going ahead and they're building and they're going against you. They're going against you. I want you to see this. Look at chapter 6. Without getting into the content of the enemy's letters, it essentially was tearing down the people. It was tearing down what they were doing, and it was, it, was, it was getting in the way of what it was that they wanted to do to rebuild this temple. But notice this. Chapter 6, the Bible says this. King Darius then issued an order. Now, he's the king. He's over it all. And they searched the archives, stored in the treasury of Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media. And this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundation be laid. It is to be 90 feet. And then it goes on and gives some of the specifics of this decree. Now then, this writer who had written the letter to the king, now then Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates and Shethar Bozani, and you and their fellow officials of that province, I want you to see this, verse 6 of chapter 6, stay away from there. Stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. God had a message. The king had a message for the enemy, and it was stay away from my people. Stay away from that which I have decreed. Brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart there is a message from God to the enemy in your your life who has been trying to discourage you and trying to come against you and his message is stay away from my servant stay away from the one who is seeking to rebuild their lives according to my word and rebuild this kingdom of God according to my word rebuild this local body according to my word brothers and sisters God will intervene God will step in and say I'm going to have my way you let the work go forward the king said, you know what, you get out of here, you don't even come near them, you cut it out. I, look, the king, he was over it all. When I read this, I just about, I couldn't believe it. I, and, and honestly, I've read these books before, and I had never seen it that way, that it came from the king. They had to cease their interference. And brothers and sisters, God is over everything. God is more powerful than the enemy. You might think that over 2010 that there have been so many troubles and difficulties that it seems like the enemy seems to have more power than God. But I'm here to let you know that he is not even equal in power. He, is, he has less power than God. God is all powerful. Satan's power is finite. It's limited. And there is 
and anything that he can do to make you be overcome by his power. Brothers and sisters, we serve a mighty God who says, I will build my church. I will do the work and I want to use you to do it. I want to use you to be a part of it. And brothers and sisters, in 2011, I want to see God do great and mighty things in this local body. I'd love to see this body become so big. We got to have two services on a Sunday morning. You say, why, pastor, to make you feel good? No, no, not at, not at all, not at all. I get pumped up every time I come and get to preach to you all. But I'm here to let you know that when, the, when it comes down to it, brothers and sisters, we have a lost city around us. And you know what? We're called to rebuild the kingdom. We're called to build the house of the Lord and to build this local body. God has more in store for us. He has more in store for us than what we could even begin to imagine or think. He wants to do greater things. I know some of you, you've been praying for things for years and you have yet to see an answer. The enemy would love to have you give up on that prayer. He would love to have you just say, you know what, you might as well just shut that prayer down because God's not interested, by the way. You just might as well close your mouth and stop praying for that neighbor or stop praying for that friend or that family member or that situation that is against you. You just go ahead and close your mouth because God ain't hearing you. But I want you to know that God is hearing you. God is is listening and he is hearing the prayer of his saints. Don't you stop praying. Don't you stop working for the Lord. Don't you stop putting your effort in to seeing the kingdom of God built not only in your life but also through your life. Oh listen a message came from the king. You get out of there. I love that. I love how he put it. You stay away from there. The devil has no power in this place, brothers and sisters. The enemy needs to stay away from here. And we need to begin to pray as never before that God will come down in this church and he will so revolutionize our vision and our thinking and our understanding of what his plan is for our lives. You know, God had a plan for each and every one of them. God had a plan for that group of exiles. I, I a little while ago, talked out of the book of Jeremiah. I believe it was last week. Last week, we talked out of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was before this exile. Do you see the faithfulness of God here? The faithfulness of God was God promised they would go into Babylonian captivity, and after 70 years, they'd return. Here we are. They've returned. They returned to a big pile of rubble. But you know what? Out of the rubble and out of the ash heap, God is able to empower his people and give them what they need and stand in their defense and on their side so that they can rebuild, so that they don't have to look back over the past and say, that's how it was. Oh, it's so bad. We'll never be the same. I want you to know that that worship, that building, that temple was never the same as it was in Solomon's day, but their worship was purer. Their worship was more pure. Their worship was more right before the Lord because they came and they gave their all to the Lord. I want us to stand to our feet right now.